Tonight, the New York-led push to shake up police departments nationwide by hiring more women as cops. Meet the former police chief behind this groundbreaking project. Who believes greater representation is key to better policing? Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, many law enforcement experts began calling for a change in the way police departments all over the country operate. One suggestion to improve police departments? Hire more women. Currently, women make up just 12% of the law enforcement officers in the country and 3% of police leadership. A coalition of current and former law enforcement officers in conjunction with researchers at NYU want to increase that number significantly. They're calling their effort the 30 for 30 initiative, and their aim is to have women make up 30% of new police recruits by 2030. They believe that more women officers will help police departments deal with issues like excessive use of force, conflict with diverse neighborhoods, and the sometimes toxic culture of police stations. So joining me now to talk about the program and its goals are two of the co-founders of the 30 by 30 initiative. First, we'd like to welcome Yvonne Roman. Yvonne is a retired former chief of the Newark Police Department. Yvonne, welcome to Metro Focus. Thanks for having us, Jenna. And I'd also like to welcome Maureen McGough. Maureen is a chief strategic chief of strategic initiatives at the NY School of Law's Policing Project. That is quite the title. Maureen, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you for having us. So first off, uh, Maureen, and I'll just go right back to you with the first question. As I mentioned, uh, the 30 for 30 initiative is the intent to have at least 30% of new police recruits by 2030. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how the initiative came about and why the focus on women? It's a great question. So first I wanna to clarify too. So our goals are to get to 30% of women in police recruit classes by the year 2030. But we're also simultaneously trying to work to remove barriers from existing policies, address inherent bias and improve agency culture so that we're welcoming women into a workplace that's set up to support their success. Um, and in terms of why we're focusing on women, uh, there's just a growing body, body of literature out there that demonstrates the unique value of women officers. They use less force and excessive force. They're named in community complaints less often. They're perceived as more trustworthy by diverse communities. They get better outcomes for victims of crime. Um, they fire their service weapon less often. They make fewer stops and searches, but when they do, they're more likely to find contraband and the list goes on. And if there was a training out there that offered all of those outcomes, I think every department in the country would be clamoring for that training. But instead, we're just focusing on having a different lens through which we value the people that we're hiring, the people we're promoting. Now, Yvonne, I just want to get your take, especially um, having been on the beat as an officer in Newark, 
what what was your experience uh, when it came to how you were able to interact and perhaps get positive outcomes from the public as opposed to uh, some maybe more aggressive male colleagues? I had a conversation with another uh, female chief and she said that uh, female officers invented de-escalation before there was uh, such a term. Uh, women uh, will usually use their verbal skills in order to get compliance, in order to get cooperation, instead of turning to physicality. So uh, in my experience, I noticed that my female detectives were able to get cooperation and to get uh, information from individuals without having to become coercive in a conversational manner. And based on that, I knew that the the decrease of women in policing that I had been noting was problematic because I knew that we had very good outcomes when I myself was uh, investing in the women on our job. Of course. And now I do, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that while people might be hearing this and thinking this sounds like a really good idea, maybe this is a great way to address it. At the same time, um, people might be thinking of uh, two recent instances where female police officers not only used uh, force, but deadly force against what ended up being unarmed civilians. And so, Marina, I want to go back to you and just get your take on what, again, the research was showing, because I'm sure there are some people who are saying, well, wait a second, what about, you know, former officer Kimberly Potter? Or what about former officer Amber Geiger? Both of those instances, civilians ended up dead. I really appreciate that question. So we launched this initiative, I think it was two weeks before Kimberly Potter shot Dante Wright. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important to name up front. We're not saying that an improvement in the representation of the experiences of women is gonna solve all of the problems of policing in this country. But we do think it's an important part of the equation that hasn't received significant attention. And given that growing body of research evidence about how women officers uh, police differently, it's important to make sure that improving the representation and experiences is part of an agency's reform strategy. And Yvonne, I wanna get your take, because uh, one of the other criticisms that has been out there when it comes to policing is that just the simple nature of the way the police academy is run, it emphasizes too much on uh, control, submission, and gaining those things by use of force. So is it not just a case of adding more women, but also perhaps changing the training techniques? It's definitely uh, an issue with the culture. Police, uh, too often their image is paramilitary, uh, very macho driven, uh, very physical in nature. And when we look at the skills that are required for policing, often it's that communication skills. Police officers will go from interpersonal conflict to interpersonal conflict. And many police officers will bristle when I say that they play more of a role of a, a social worker than they do of a paramilitary uh, officer. But their log sheets show that that what they do is, is handle those type of situations where the most important skill would be interpersonal communication skills and not so much uh, uh, brawn and, and force. Okay, so then Maureen, this actually brings me back to another question, which uh, obviously, but uh, which is the social worker aspect. Now, some people who have been calling for a change in the way police departments operate um, or even run or funded, et cetera, have said that no, we actually do need people who are trained specifically in social work, who are trained in domestic uh, violence disputes um, and de-escalation of those type of things. 
And again, something that people might point to is the way the male officers handled the interaction with um, the young woman who unfortunately ended up dead when she was traveling with her boyfriend. Uh, I believe that was last summer. So again, that was another example where people were saying, well, the male officers just did not see what to a female might have been clear signs of distress and crisis. Yeah, I mean, the, the research certainly suggests that's the case. Um, you know, women officers are associated with better outcomes for victims of crime, especially victims of um, sexual assault. And there absolutely is, you know, research that suggests that women just perform differently in that sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up sort of the, the growing and appropriate attention to the need for individuals with specialized training that's much more in line with social work principles than law enforcement for many of the crises that, that law enforcement is called out to address. And, and there really is this growing attention towards reimagining what public safety services look like. Um, we actually think our effort is really complementary to that because while you're reimagining what public safety services look like, and perhaps you're even replacing police officers with social workers for certain situations, you'll still have a law enforcement agency that remains. And then it's important to reimagine who the police are and really focus on improving the representation and experiences of women in that department. Of course. And uh, Yvonne, from your experience, uh, again, is is it more a case of um, people being perhaps trained in uh, social work or something along those lines? Because there's also a huge difference in the amount of time that a social worker is expected to train than uh, most police academies are run. Most police academies tend to be five or six months long. And uh, examples have been given where it takes uh, 18 months to, to two years to become a barber. I think that uh, we don't spend enough time on our officers and the time that they do have in the academies are focused more on the physical traits of the job instead of the uh, the communication skills, the de-escalation, uh, recognizing when someone may be in trauma or distress. Uh, being able to talk down individuals. So there's definitely has to be a realignment on what we consider makes a police officer a good police officer and what we reward. Uh, many times uh, we will reward officers that are, are engaged in um, a physical altercation and where they're able to make the arrest, but not uh, reward the officers that are be able to de-escalate a situation where physical force isn't needed at all. So we need to re-examine the, the culture entirely and decide uh, what kind of police officers we want, what policing looks like, and who gets to police. Of course. And uh, also, I wanted to ask, is there any concern um, about being able to grow this initiative, given the fact that it's not all, we also hear about officers getting killed on the job and female officers perhaps facing uh a unique intersectional, let's say, uh, challenge because just of their na by nature of being a female, they might be being perceived as being easier to uh, deal with, to handle, or to threaten. So you, you can't deny that there will be instances where you do need to um, go hands to hand with um, an individual where force may be needed. And we're never advocating for doing away with, with physical fitness or for teaching those traits. We're asking that the culture change in order to emphasize the traits that are used uh, more regularly in a police officer's job so that you're not emphasizing a physical force and that you're training officers on the skills that are necessary on a regular to do the job. Uh, oftentimes we'll get anecdotes about a female officer that was assaulted. Policing has been male historically and male officers has been uh, assaulted since the beginning of policing, right? 
Uh, we also have these anecdotes where police officers that are women have made poor decisions. But when we look at the data, we're looking at research and we're looking at the masses, the, the whole of the data set. And when you look at the data set and you look under what's the bell curve, you will have better outcomes when the traits are aligned with, with historically we have considered female traits, that interpersonal communication. And, and an interesting point about that question, Yvonne, this reminds me of some of the work that Penny Harrington did with the National Center for Women in Policing way back when. There actually used to be an assumption that women police officers would kill more people because they would have to resort to using their weapons sooner than a man who maybe could go hands-on without having to use their weapon. And so the National Center for Women in Policing, I think it was maybe 25, 30 years ago, Yvonne, I don't mean, do you remember when the research came out? I mean, it's been a while did some groundbreaking research to really sort of start the trend of showing that women officers actually use less force because they use their intellect and their emotional intelligence and their communication skills before they use their hands. Well, one more question in regards to training is, uh, and I did mention that it is, of course, the emphasis is looking for uh, women, but also more diversity on police departments. And is the uh, the five to six months worth of training, is that enough time to really be able to unpack some of the biases that people might be bringing to the job that can make interacting, especially with marginalized neighborhoods, so fraught? And Yvonne, I'll start with you. I think uh, there's a lot of training that's packed in because of liability reasons. They need to reevaluate that training, what's covered, what's not. And if they're not going to extend the amount of time that the police recruits are in the academy, then they need to evaluate what the content is and prioritize which one are uh, more effective and impactful for police departments and the communities that they serve. And Maureen, do you have, yeah? I, I would just add, so, you know, of course, we're really focusing on um, who the police are and mm -hmm. what you're talking about is a critical component. And that's also understanding how police are trained. But I also think there's sort of a third element, too, to focus on in terms of doing things like reducing reducing disparities. And that's understanding what strategies are available for police officers to use and understanding the impacts of those strategies. So, you know, in theory, if you have a situation where you're getting people in the door whose skills and abilities are actually aligned with fair and effective policing, you're training them appropriately, and then you're improving data collection to understand if you're having a disparate impact on the people that you're serving, over time, all of those things together should work to reduce a lot of the problems that we currently see in policing. So we've talked a lot about just the nature of the job, but I'm also interested about the changing of the culture. And Marina, I want to go back to you and just get an idea of what are some of the barriers that people might be facing or perhaps some of the perceived barriers when it comes to uh, women and minorities, non-traditional people entering into this field. So I'm excited to hear from Yvonne from this because she lived it um, and she speaks very eloquently about her experience. But, um, you know, one of the things we're really focusing on 30 by 30 is just drawing attention to the impacts of the fact that this culture was historically built by and for men, white men specifically. So there are, of course, problems with sexual harassment. There's some studies that indicate that over 93% of police women experience some type of sexual harassment at some point in their career. But then there are also the things that that just suggests this isn't a place that's for you. And they're not necessarily intentional, but they're just a reflection of the fact that women tr traditionally did not have roles in police leadership. Things like 
equipment not being appropriately fit to the contours of a woman's body or a nursing mother not having a clean and sanitary place to pump when she gets back on the job. So what we're trying to do with the pledge is really highlight all of these sort of different aspects of policing strategies and processes that contribute to their culture that add up to make it so that it's a profession that isn't designed to support the unique needs of women. And we're just working to change it that way. Yvonne, yeah, if you could just add on with your personal experience. I think at times there may be a devaluing of the type of policing that you get based on gender. Uh, research has shown that women are less likely to make arrests, uh, less likely to make summonses, uh, to issue summonses. Yet when you interview uh, citizens, they uh, overwhelmingly will give high marks and high satisfaction rates to female officers. But now when you analyze those officers and, and compare them based on gender, the officers uh, that will have the more arrests and more summonses are seen as more productive. And overwhelmingly, those tend to be male officers. So police departments have to analyze what they're measuring and why those measures are important to them and decide what they're going to weight um, uh, heavier and what they're going to weight less when looking at how that impacts the community. If you're sending police officers into a, a disadvantaged community because there are is a high level of violence, are you really getting the best uh, return for your, for your dollars, for your investment by going in and blanketing that area with arrests and with summonses? Uh, it's perverse incentives. So we have to reanalyze how we assess these officers and how we decide whether they're being uh, most productive to the community or or not and how. Well, Maureen, I would just want to build on that because we are, uh, as we have this conversation, um, being conscious of our language and using some uh, euphemisms, diverse communities, marginalized, et cetera, I've said that, but what we're largely talking about are black and brown communities where there's been the most conflict with police departments. And so from your experience in Newark, uh, is it, how important is the diversity and how intersectional should that diversity be? Where we're not just talking about just getting more black people, but perhaps black women, um, is do we need to have perhaps uh, officers who are openly gay or perhaps trans or from the Muslim community? How important is diversity and what are we actually talking about? Is that for Yvonne? Oh, yeah, sorry, Yvonne. I'm sorry if I said Marine. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I think lived experience is important. I uh, am Latina. I was born in Puerto Rico. My parents uh, came to um, Newark uh, when uh, they had the, the uprisings. And they remember um, being stopped by the police. They remember getting um, um, relocated, picked up, and dropped off in bad neighborhoods. Um, smacked around by the police. And so I grew up listening to those stories and it impacted the way that I policed because I knew that neighborhood in and out. I knew the history. So it's very important to have uh, police officers that are intersectional whose lived experience aligns with those that uh, they are policing. It, it, it makes a, a difference. I, I think it's very important to have a, a representative policing that understands those stories. And Maureen, is there any data that backs up what um, Yvonne was just saying? Yes, absolutely. There's really strong research out there actually about um, sort of the importance of a department reflecting the community it serves for things like public trust and legitimacy. Um, and I will say, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to do through 30 by 30 um, is help police departments understand 
broadly, not just about gender, but also about race, ethnicity, and other demographic factors about how they're impacting different groups and how they might be failing to reach different groups in the recruitment materials, for example. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty confident, though we're pretty early in the initiative, that if an agency successfully implements the elements of our pledge, they'll be able to support an improvement in experiences of a lot of different demographic groups, not just women. And, um, you know, I'm really glad you brought up the importance of intersectionality. That's something that we're um, sort of hyper aware of at the initiative. We try not to pre present women as a homogenous group and acknowledge that there are many other factors, particularly for black and brown women in agencies that make their experience even more difficult than the experiences of women overall. Well, I'm also wondering uh, when it comes to uh, the data, at least, of how policing is, uh, the results that you get, are mm. there any agencies that have so far gotten involved who have said, actually, you know what, this this looks like something that would really help us? Because usually when we hear about police departments, it's not good news. I mean, Yvonne, I'd love to hear from you, too, on this, but I will say that we've had an overwhelmingly positive response. You know, one thing to keep in mind, and we didn't talk too much about our origin story, but, you know, this is something that, you know, Yvonne came to me when I was at the DOJ um, about four years ago and sort of pointed out how underrepresented women are and how much the research is growing, that they're uniquely valuable. And, you know, we sort of pulled this together over time and it's it, largely unfunded until the last year. It's not like we had a recruitment budget of our own to bring agencies in or a marketing campaign or anything like that. It's really just been word of mouth and the advocacy of people in police leadership positions. Um, we have a strong representation of women leaders in our agencies, but we also have a lot of men chiefs who believe the research and believe in the importance of, of doing the work well. Um, you know, I, we've been up and running for a little over a year and a half, only recently funded, and we have almost 200 agencies at this point. Okay. And Yvonne, your take? I, I think that uh, the work that we're doing is... Uh really being impactful people are really buying in most of our solutions are low cost or no cost solutions so money can't be an excuse on how to do it we have uh one of our dear friends uh, chief ken clary from uh, bellevue nebraska who himself has gone on recruited and he's been able to show that um you don't water down uh, your, your standards because you're recruiting uh, women. You actually bring in quality candidates. The people that he personally recruited won all the awards in the academy, the academic awards, the physical fitness award, the marksman awards. So he himself annihilated any argument that by uh, recruiting a diverse pool, you actually were watering down uh, policing. Um, and so we appreciate people like him being very vocal and creating this community of practice where other agencies can learn from the examples of their peers. Uh, and I do want to hear actually uh, a little bit more of the origin story, but very quickly, Maureen, since we are airing in the metropolitan area, uh, I understand that the NYPD is involved in this to some extent. Yes, and I will say, um, so Deputy Commissioner Tanya Meisenholder, um, who was formerly Deputy Commissioner for um, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in NYPD, she was on our steering committee. Um, she really helped us think through uh, how best to build the pledge. And NYPD was actually one of the first agencies to sign on. And I do think that's made a big difference in terms of other agencies' interests in participating in the work. All right. So then let's actually get into uh, with the few minutes that we have left, but let's talk about how this, uh, the origin story of the organization. So Yvonne, I want to start with you with like, when was the moment that you said, you know what, something, we clearly need to do something different and I have an idea. 
So in 2014, I was implementing a hiring plan in Newark to hire 400 officers very quickly. We were uh, down 400 officers because of layoffs in 2010, and we were losing large groups of women in the academy uh, for reasons that I couldn't understand. And I tried to raise the flag and no one really seemed concerned. Their attitude was, well, if they can't cut it, then they don't need to be cops. Um, they were uh, being dismissed within the first two weeks because of physical fitness. Now, I didn't know if that was a problem isolated to Newark or to the state or to the nation. And because I was working with Maureen at the um, LEADS program at the National Institute of Justice, I had access to the data and the research. And what I found that the number of women were not only stagnant in Newark or in New Jersey, but the entire country. And the number hadn't moved much in uh, about 30 years. It had been stuck at around 12% when there was this huge body of literature showing all the benefits and no one pointed to the benefits. The attitude was, well, if they can't cut it, they don't deserve to be here. Then maybe you need to reprioritize what qualifies an officer and look at it to see if that aligns with what the community wants. And if it's not, then you have a mandate from the community to change that and to make policing look like what the community demands. The community are the people that are being served. So it's not the police department that should be dictating. It should be the communities that dictate what is the type of policing that they want. And Maureen? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say when Yvonne uh, first brought this to us when we were at, when I was at the U.S. Department of Justice, I think we were all really surprised. Um, I, I just I don't think anybody had, had raised it. And, you know, Yvonne had been doing such great work in New Jersey to, to try and retain the women recruits and make sure that they were able to get through the system as it currently exists. Um, so Yvonne and I joined forces and we hosted a, a national summit in 2018 where we brought together uh, 100 folks from women commissioners of major metro departments to women with five years on the job to try and understand what's happening. What are your experiences? What are the barriers to your own success in this in this environment? And, and what can we be doing? What can we be building to help address some of those? Um, we had uh, researchers, policymakers, federal officials in the room. Um, and the report from that summit really laid the groundwork for Yvonne and I to, to keep the work going. And I will say that summit really launched a, a bit of a community of practice. I mean, 30 by 30 exists because there's a coalition mostly of women who believe very strongly in the importance of doing the work, who've come together, most of them to do the work pro bono. Wow. Well, Yvonne, we have about 30 seconds left, but to uh, any young woman or just woman of any age, really, who might be considering, you know, maybe this is a path, this is a place where I can make a difference in my community, but I'm, I'm not quite sure, do I cut it? Am I the right type, et cetera? What would you say to a woman who's perhaps thinking about this, but not sure? Uh, for, as a personal uh, anecdote myself, I can tell you that uh, communities need your type of policing. You have what it takes to become a police officer. So reach out to your local police department, find out when the application is coming out and apply and, and start preparing. There's no superhuman feat that's required to become a police officer. All it requires is that you're a good person. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have, but I would like to thank both of my guests for joining us. Yvonne Roman, a retired former police chief of the Newark Police Department. Thank you for joining us. And also thank you to Maureen McCoff, Chief of Strategic Initiatives at the NYU School of Law's Policing Project. Thank you both for joining us here on Metro Focus. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely.